Welcome to Backlog Books. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I've been reading lately. My name is Kara. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. Let's just dive right in, because this is going to be a slightly longer episode than normal. This time, we are talking about The Odyssey by Homer, translated by Emily Wilson. The translation I am talking about was published in 2017. The Odyssey itself is an ancient Greek epic poem from around the 8th century BCE. It is attributed to Homer, though apparently some people argue that it was actually by someone else. This is an area of study people can and have spent their whole lives on. So if you want to know more about Homer and about you know, the question of who really authored the Odyssey, I suggest that you find a better source than this podcast. What we know about Homer as a person is basically nothing, because it's been a couple thousand years since he was alive. What we do know is that he was, and still is, incredibly influential in literature and art. Other authors from over the vast number of centuries have referred to him as poet sovereign, king of all poets, and greatest of poets. There's this legend that he was a blind bard from Ionia, but apparently modern scholars consider these accounts to be legendary and not necessarily true. Dr. Emily Wilson, our translator, is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She has a lifelong love of classics that led to her translating the Odyssey, and she's currently working on a translation of the Iliad. You can find recordings of her talks about classics and translating on her website, which I will link to in the show notes. Now, the Odyssey has been translated since the 16th century. And it's not just been one translation everybody's been referring to. There have been at least 13 translations done just since the year 2000. Like the Iliad, this story is split into 24 books. And there are summaries of each book, along with footnotes in the back of this book, by the way, which I didn't know until I was halfway through reading it but is helpful if you're doing something like writing a podcast episode about it. I haven't actually read any other translations of the Odyssey. This was my first time reading it, so I can't offer any comparisons to how it measured up to other translations, because I just don't know. Most of what I knew about the Odyssey itself I absorbed from other sources, what I do know about this translation is that Wilson wrote this in iambic pentameter, and her translation has the same number of lines as the original. And as always, there are so many topics that I could just spend so much time on, and translation is one of them, because it's such a cool area of study. Wilson herself says, translation always necessarily involves interpretation. There's no one-to-one exact replica of the meaning of the original. You just have to accept 
that the translator is interpreting as best they can. You can read 30 different translations of the Odyssey, and each will have a different take on the first line. And that's just the first line. There's like 12,000 lines in this poem. But we can't spend all our time talking about translation. There is a long but interesting introduction to the book, which I feel is fairly common for classics. It helps set your expectations, and it certainly helped me understand what I was getting into. It talked about what the world was like back then and covered some of the differences between an old Grecian oral epic and our modern ideas of things like the hero's journey, etc. According to Wilson, most of this story is about hospitality and rules from the gods. Zeus is the god of strangers. If you treat a visitor poorly, you risk his wrath. On the other hand, if you're a guest, you shouldn't stay too long and take advantage of hospitality, but you also don't leave too early because that would insult your host. And that's just one example of, like, the rules laid out for you by the gods. And how well do you walk the line that the gods have laid out? And the Odyssey is very much a story driven by the gods. Without their intervention, Odysseus would still be trapped on Calypso's island. Athena is the one who nudges the first pebbles of the landslide that will lead Odysseus home. And she is very present throughout the whole story. She's basically Odysseus's patron. They are eerily similar at times. Now, I'm going to read some parts of this book to you because I think it's fun. Also, this story began as an oral epic. It's meant to be heard. And if anyone ever tells you that audiobooks don't count as reading, tell them to stuff it because listening to stories is a time-honored tradition in human history. Okay, that's all our setup. Our story begins. Tell me about a complicated man. Muse, tell me how he wandered and was lost when he had wrecked the holy town of Troy. And where he went and who he met, the pain he suffered on the sea, and how he worked to save his life and bring his men back home. He failed, and for their own mistakes they died. They ate the sun god's cattle, and the god kept them from home. Now, goddess, child of Zeus, tell the old story for our modern times. Find the beginning. The beginning is about the gods, discussing what should be done about Odysseus. They've promised he will get home, after all. But he is currently trapped on Calypso's island. He's been away from home for almost 20 years. Ten years spent at the siege of Troy. Ten years spent trying to get home. Zeus gives Athena the go-ahead to do what she was planning to do anyway, and she sets out to help Odysseus on his journey home. The next few books actually follow Odysseus's son, Telemachus, in Ithaca. Telemachus, who barely knew his father and yet lives under his shadow. His mother, Penelope, spends all her days weeping because of her long-lost husband. 
The house of absent Odysseus is under a plague of suitors, rich young men who come every day and eat their food and try to pressure Penelope into marrying one of them. Telemachus tries and fails to assert himself as master of the house. The suitors mock him and stay, eating all his father's wealth away. In case you're wondering or keeping track, on the hospitality scale, the suitors are being bad guests. Led by Athena, Telemachus leaves home and seeks news of his father from two kings who fought with Odysseus at Troy, Nestor of Pylos and Menelaus of Sparta. Now, Menelaus may sound familiar. His wife is Helen, famously blamed as the reason for the Trojan War. And we see the after-effects of the Trojan War echoing through this tale, and there are lots of references to the events of the Iliad. There is also in here a story of warning, that of Agamemnon, who returned home after years away fighting the Trojan War and was killed by his own unfaithful wife. Telemachus finds no recent word of his father. The most anyone can tell him is that, last they heard, Odysseus was trapped on Calypso's island. We can see the importance of hospitality as Telemachus is first taken in and then given gifts by both of these kings. It's a sign of both how much wealth the kings have that they can give away so much, and also how much they esteem Odysseus because they treat his son well. Telemachus's behavior as a guest is quite the contrast to what we have seen from the suitors in his home. He offers to leave every day, graciously thanks the kings for their hospitality. The suitors, on the other hand, invite themselves over every day and insist on being feasted and partying. Also, around the time Telemachus left home, the suitors made plans to ambush and kill him so that it's easier for one of them to marry Penelope and claim kingship of Ithaca. Again, low on the hospitality scale. Eventually, we get back to our man Odysseus, the many-minded, sorrowful, lying, godlike Odysseus. Much like Penelope, Odysseus spends his days weeping on Calypso's island, thinking of his home so far away. It requires the intervention of the gods to get him back on the path home. Though he will make it home, because that has been promised to him, it doesn't mean his road will be easy. Especially as he encounters godly obstacles. Mostly a lot of shipwrecks, because he angered Poseidon. Which seems like a dumb thing to do for someone born on an island. But that's Odysseus for you. After leaving Calypso's island, Odysseus's little ship is wrecked, gasp, I'm so surprised, and he floats to shore and reaches Phaeacia, the land of mighty sailors. These people are famous for getting lost travelers home. It's foretold, however, that one day they will anger Poseidon by doing this, and he will raise a mountain to block their city. Wow, I wonder what they would do that might anger Poseidon. 
So there are lots of asides and throwbacks. The poet wants to give you context. So you get the history of the Phaeacians and of, of their king and the king's father's story and how the family stands with the gods. And you learn all of this stuff, and then the king gives Odysseus gifts, and Odysseus leaves, and that's it. It can be a little overwhelming, the amount of information you get, actually. So Odysseus, in disguise, is welcomed by the Phaeacians. He asks them to tell him stories of the Trojan War, and specifically to tell him stories about Odysseus. He's in disguise, and he's like, hey, I heard this Odysseus guy was really cool. Why don't you, like, tell me about him? And to be fair, Odysseus is pretty cool. He was the one who actually came up with the idea for the Trojan horse. So he's listening to all these stories, and they're, they're about all his friends who died and all the horrors of war. And he has this visceral reaction to every story and I love the metaphors used. So let's hear about Odysseus's reaction. Odysseus was melting into tears. His cheeks were wet with weeping, as a woman weeps as she falls to wrap her arms around her husband, fallen fighting for his home and children. She is watching as he gasps and dies. She shrieks, a clear, high wail collapsing upon his corpse. The men are right behind. They hit her shoulders with their spears and lead her to slavery, hard labor, and a life of pain. Her face is marked with her despair. In that same desperate way, Odysseus was crying. Now King Alcinous, his host, begs that Odysseus explain who he is and why the news from Troy affects him so much. I'm going to skip around a little just to make this a little um, shorter. But his response begins, Wily Odysseus, the lord of lies, answered, Now something prompted you to ask about my own sad story. I will tell you, though the memory increases my despair. Where shall I start? Where can I end? The gods have given me so much to cry about. First, I will tell my name, so we will be acquainted, and if I survive, you can be my guest in my distant home one day. I am Odysseus, Laertes' son, known for my many clever tricks and lies. My fame extends to heaven, but I live in Ithaca. And it's such an interesting choice to begin this section wherein, in theory, Odysseus is telling the truth, but it begins with reminding us that Odysseus is a big fat liar. Wily Odysseus, the lord of lies, he tells them his story from leaving the field of Troy and all of his attempts to get home. At each step, he is thwarted by the gods. His men anger Zeus, Odysseus himself angers Poseidon, and this is where the balance of what we consider the Odyssey takes place, where we hear about Odysseus's trials, his shipwrecks, his crew being punished, being trapped by Circe, being turned into pigs, visiting the dead. 
It's interesting to me that the Odyssey starts in the middle. In media res is what they call it. We hear about the beginning through a well-known liar. And you'll see when we get to book 24, it has a rather abrupt end. But Odysseus pleads with the Phaeacians to help him reach home. They agree. It's what they're known for. They load him with gifts, put together a crew of their strongest and best sailors. Odysseus is put on the ship, and Athena pours sleep over him like oil. He's dropped off on the shores of Ithaca, sound asleep. He doesn't even get to experience the anticipation of homecoming. He doesn't get to see Ithaca on the horizon, to step onto the shore. He's tucked away into a little cave, all his riches piled around him, and then the sailors leave. So Odysseus wakes, and he can't even be sure of exactly where he is. It's been 20 years. Ten years at war and ten years lost and wandering. He meets a stranger on the shore, who is, of course, Athena in disguise as an old man, and he decides to test her to see if he's really in Ithaca. He makes up this tragic backstory for himself, pretending to be someone else. Athena lets him lie to her for a while, and I think she just likes hearing a masterful liar before she calls him out. To outwit you in all your tricks, a person or a god would need to be an expert at deceit. You clever rascal, so duplicitous, so talented at lying, you love fiction and tricks so deeply you refuse to stop even in your own land. Yes, both of us are smart. No man can plan and talk like you, and I am known among the gods for insight and craftiness. You failed to recognize me. I am Athena, child of Zeus. I always stand near you and take care of you in all your hardships. Odysseus is taken aback. He doesn't usually get caught in his lies. Athena reassures him. She's been there every step of the way. She's pretty impressed with the way he lies all the time. And together they plan how Odysseus will return to his home and take vengeance on the suitors. Before he can go to his house and announce himself, Odysseus must do some investigating. And this is where we can sort of see the parallel with Agamemnon, who was killed by his unfaithful wife, because Agamemnon just went home. He didn't stop to ask if his wife had maybe changed allegiance in the ten years he was gone. He just went straight home and was killed. So Athena, still helping, disguises Odysseus. If no one in Ithaca wants him back, he's kind of out of luck. But the loyal slave swineherd Eumaeus takes him in and says they mourn Odysseus and every day pray for his return. But even though they wish for his return, no one believes that he will return. Maybe they've lost hope or they're trying not to tempt the fates. 
Over and over, Odysseus in disguise swears that Odysseus will return. Over and over, the swineherd and later Penelope say, That's nice, but I won't believe Odysseus is alive until he's right in front of me. Now, Telemachus returns, having avoided the suitor's death trap with Athena's help, and is reunited with his father. Together, they plan Odysseus's return and how they will trap and kill the suitors. Odysseus enters his own home disguised as a beggar. Once again, we're testing hospitality. How will the suitors treat a stranger? Telemachus and Penelope welcome him properly, with food and a place to sit. The suitors only grudgingly give him food, and then they mock and throw things at him. One of the things you see in this poem is that each character has an attribute commonly applied to them, an epithet, if you will. Penelope is cautious, Telemachus is careful, Odysseus is often described as lying. But he's not only a liar, he's been called cunning and godlike, he's wept, often thinking of his home, but he is also possessed of a fiery temper. A temper fanned into brighter flames by Athena. She is a war goddess, after all. Odysseus holds his temper in check until their trap can be set, but there are several moments where he contemplates killing someone for being rude to him. Penelope, unaware of her husband's return, offers a final test to the suitors. She has spent years putting them off, done all she can to stay where she is and protect her home. She spent three years weaving and at night unweaving a shroud for her father-in-law. Every day she puts the suitors off, and every night she weeps, hoping for her husband's return. She tells the suitors they're not courting her properly, since none of them brought her gifts. Another bitter thought oppresses me. It is not right or proper to court a decent woman in this way, a rich man's wife competing for her hand. They ought to bring fat sheep and cows to feed my family and give fine gifts, not eat what is not theirs and offer nothing back. Odysseus, who had endured so much, was happy she was secretly procuring presents and charming them with pretty words while her mind moved elsewhere. And so this final test, I mean, okay, she says it's the final test, but this woman is the queen of putting stuff off, is an amazing idea. She tells the suitors she will marry whoever can string Odysseus's bow and shoot an arrow through twelve axes. None of the suitors come anywhere near to Odysseus. They don't have his strength or experience, and they know it. They are young, untested in battle. Odysseus was strong enough to string the bow before he went to war. Most of the suitors try and fail, but the strongest put it off until tomorrow, claiming that today is a feast day for Apollo, so of course none of them will win an archery contest. Odysseus, still disguised as a beggar, sees his chance. Odysseus, the lord of lies, had carefully considered how to fool them. 
He said, Now hear me, suitors of the queen. Let me reveal the promptings of my heart. Eurymachus and Lord Antinous, I ask you specially, because you spoke so well. Now set the bow aside and turn towards the gods. At dawn, the god will choose the victor and give him success. For now, give me the polished bow, so I can try my strength and find out if my hands still have the suppleness and vigor of my youth, or if it has been lost in all my years of homelessness and poverty. The suitors are suspicious, but Telemachus intervenes. You actually finally see him standing up for himself and asserting his place, and he makes sure Odysseus gets the bow. With ease, Odysseus strings his bow and fires an arrow through twelve axes. The next arrow goes into a suitor's throat, and the trap is sprung. Odysseus and Telemachus, helped by two slaves, slaughter the suitors and kill any of the household who might have sided with them. In case you're wondering where this falls on the hospitality scale, it's pretty low. Odysseus, however, has not yet offended the gods, but he has slaughtered nearly all the young rich men of Ithaca. These suitors have families who will run revenge, and unless Odysseus makes peace with them, they'll kill him. While the remaining slaves clean up the slaughtered young men, Odysseus meets with Penelope. This woman has waited 20 years for him to come home. She's lived with the fear and anxiety and getting news of him from unreliable sources. And now, yes, this man has freed her from the threat of suitors. But this is careful Penelope. She would never promise anything you asked as a reward. She tests Odysseus. She offers to bring his bed down for him. And Odysseus is furious. He made that bed himself, and it's anchored to a living tree. No one should be able to move it without chopping down a vital piece of his house's structure. And I love this for Penelope. She knew exactly what kind of reaction the real Odysseus would have to her suggestion. He's been gone for 20 years, but Penelope still knows him. Who else but your closest person would know exactly what button to push to set you off? Finally, in book 23 of 24, husband and wife are reunited. He held his love, his faithful wife, and wept, as welcome as the land to swimmers when Poseidon wrecks their ship at sea and breaks it with great waves. And driving winds, a few escape the sea, and reach the shore, their skin all caked with brine. Grateful to be alive, they crawl to land. So glad she was to see her own dear husband, and her white arms would not let go his neck. They would have wept until the rosy dawn began to touch the sky, but shining-eyed Athena intervened. She held night back restraining golden dawn beside the ocean and would not let her yoke her swift young colts, shining and bright. But that's not the end of the Odyssey. It's not even the end of Odysseus's travels. He's fated to sail again, far from Ithaca. 
as he says, Teresius foretold that I must travel through many cities carrying an oar till I reach men who do not know the sea. Then I must fix my oar firm in the earth and make a sacrifice to Lord Poseidon. If I do this, I will not die at sea. I will grow old in comfort and will meet a gentle death surrounded by my people who will be rich and happy. Assuming, of course, that he doesn't anger another god or his crew doesn't abandon him, but before he can do any of that, he must deal with the fallout from the slaughter of the suitors. He retreats to his father's farm, reassures his father that he's alive, and waits for the families of the suitors. And we've reached book 24. We've had Odysseus's triumphant return. He's reunited with his wife. He's waiting for the suitors' families to come and possibly try to kill him. But we don't resolve that. First, we follow the suitors as their spirits are collected by Hermes and ferried to Hades. He led the spirits and they followed, squeaking like bats in secret crannies of a cave, who cling together and when one becomes detached and falls down from the rock, the rest flutter and squeak, just so the spirits squeaked, and hurried after Hermes, lord of healing. Now the suitors meet the spirits of the dead, the same ones Odysseus encountered on his journey, the heroes of old and those who died at Troy. And there the suitors meet Agamemnon, who was killed on his own return home by his unfaithful wife. Agamemnon offers no comfort to their suitors and their violent, unexpected deaths. Instead, he calls Odysseus lucky to have such a loyal wife. And it's a good point that without Penelope there to hold off the suitors and keep faith, Odysseus would have come home to a very different Ithaca. And then the suitors' families come to kill Odysseus. Again, Odysseus's temper flares, and he nearly ruins it, nearly continues the slaughter. Athena intervenes before all of Ithaca can destroy itself in a blood feud. And this is how the book ends. Unwavering Odysseus let out a dreadful roar, then crouched and swooped upon them just like an eagle flying from above. But Zeus sent down a thunderbolt, which fell in front of his own daughter, great Athena. She looked at him with steely eyes and said, Odysseus, you are adaptable. You always find solutions. Stop this war or Zeus will be enraged at you. He was glad to obey her. Then Athena made the warring sides swear solemn oaths of peace for future times, still in her guise as mentor. It's honestly an abrupt end and strange to leave off there. This has just been the middle of a story. It doesn't follow the structure we expect, with a very solid beginning, middle, and an end that wraps something up neatly. Odysseus has returned home at last, rescued his family from dissolution, but he can't stay. He's fated to travel, to boldly go where no one has gone before. 
Like I said earlier, I don't have points of reference to say how good this translation was. It was certainly hyped up a lot when it came out as the first time a woman had published a translation of the Odyssey. Overall, though, I can say I liked it. It was easy to read and difficult to put down. Wilson put extra effort into using more modern language. I mean, Athena calls Odysseus a rascal earlier, but it's like she says at the beginning, tell the old story for our modern times. And that's what she did. If you want more media like this, there's always the Iliad and the Aeneid. For more modern takes, try Lavinia by Ursula Le Guin or the Queen's Thief series by Megan Whelan Turner, which is not an Odyssey retelling in any way, shape, or form, but the main character actually has a lot in common with Odysseus. And there's a lot in the Queen's Thief series about myths and gods. It's pretty cool. Join me next time to hear about The Great Hunt by Robert Jordan. Yes, I'm continuing Wheel of Time, and yes, Daniel is coming back to talk with me about it some more. Have you read next episode's book, or do you know some other good translations of the Odyssey? I'd love to hear what you think about it. You can email me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, the best way to do that right now is to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or just share it with a friend. You can follow the podcast on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon.